Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. If I had any ideas for Sunday school, had I been reading any good books or a good topic, and so I thought about it for a couple of weeks, and I thought of my own uh, need to grow in a certain area, and so I also thought since Pastor Bryce was... Uh, he had, was just finishing up his Our Sufficiency in Christ and uh, the Christ and another series, if you remember that. And I thought, well, this would be a good continuation of the uh, learning about the doctrine of the Trinity. So I said, well, this is my idea. And then a couple of weeks later, he asked me to actually teach on this subject. So this was not what I felt uh, able to teach at that time. Uh, so I pray the Lord grant me the wisdom to be able to teach others. So if you have been here the last three months, you know Justin Geyer has led us very well in the Respectable Sin Study with an emphasis on sanctified living and the life of the believer. So if you missed that series, in short, there is no respectable sin, as we've been told, and especially those that we go to bed with each night comfortably nestled in our hearts. We are to identify and repent of all sin as the psalmist says in 139, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We remember sin is the reason Christ died on the cross, so we must hate it and repent of it. So that's all of them. So Jesus tells us in Matthew 5:48 to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Peter quotes the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, where he says, You shall be holy for the Lord, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So both in our outward and inward actions, especially the heart, where sin festers, it's God's desire that we become conformed to the perfect image of Jesus Christ. So to bridge our learning from the last quarter, we're going to begin this day to consider how this is done. How does one come to the place of loving Jesus, hating sin, loving their enemies, desiring the milk and meat of the word, and ultimately conforming to the perfect image of Jesus Christ? The process is not done by the will or any effort of man. We read, but as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To those that have believed Christ and those that are yet to believe Christ, there is but one catalyst and one cause ultimately that effects the creation of the new man. Now, we could point people to the plans of the Father in eternity past and His will with the Son and the Spirit to create a world that would fall and need redemption. And then we could point them to the coming of Christ who lived the sinless life and died for the sins of His elect and then was raised by the power of the Spirit that we also may be raised. Surely the knowledge of these realities would cause or effect one of their own will to run to Christ 
and the Father and live joyfully ever after. But we know that does not happen. There is still a majority of the world in sin. As we will learn, though the remedy for sin has been prepared through the work of Jesus Christ, the world is not running to Christ. The cure for fallen man is sitting on the shelf. It is waiting to be injected. How then do the spiritually dead, who cannot lift a finger, grasp the antidote? How do they come to save themselves by injecting this cure? This gift of life is applied by only one. It is he who applies the remedy and creates in us a living heart of flesh to replace our dead heart of stone. The one who replaces our desires for self and sin with the desires for God and his will. It is the Holy Spirit who not only applies the remedy, but continues after this regeneration, this new birth, as we call it, being born again, to help his new creations. In verse 26, in the same, uh, Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. That's the Father searching the hearts. He knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit is our effectual, he causes us to believe, helper. And he will continue to help. Now, our is a possessive pronoun. The believers have been given some great gift. This great gift is the person of the Holy Spirit. He is given by both the Father and the Son, as we will learn in this series. He proceeds from the Father and from the Son for us to receive. And when one receives a gift... It is of necessity possessed by that recipient. Believers are given the Holy Spirit to claim, as they claim Jesus as their Lord and the King of Heaven as their Father. As said in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And Jesus also says in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, which could be, Uh, the overarching thematic verse for our entire series, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. And that's referring to the time of Pentecost, which we'll be learning about in the future studies. The Holy Spirit is our helper, who alone effects salvation. The world will not receive the remedy, the Savior, because they cannot receive him, as we just read. We must receive the help of the Holy Spirit to receive Christ. Again, in John fifteen twenty six, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, From the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, 
he will testify about me. A.W. Pink, I don't know if anyone here has read A.W. Pink much, it's worth your time. He says, unless we have a right conception of his glorious being, it is impossible, impossible, that we should entertain right thoughts about him, and therefore impossible for us to render him that homage, love, confidence, and submission which are his due. So let us pray that our time spent together would seek to do that, to honor him, not only the Spirit, but the Father and the Son. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our morning. We thank you, Lord, for our strength and for our health. We thank you, Lord, for your word that we are about to uh, feast upon. And Lord, we thank you for uh, our church here and our church family that you have brought together. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our time, that we would honor and glorify you as we should, and that those who do not know you uh, would uh, be given this new heart uh, to love you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So our series is a focus on the Holy Spirit, this blessed third member of the Trinity. So I would like to bring to the front of our minds why we are taking on this study. And as I mentioned before, um, it doesn't just follow what Pastor Bryce had taught about six months prior about our, uh, all of our needs being met in Christ, our sufficiency in Christ. Um, so our study is not primarily to become more intellectually savvy, although I'm sure most of us would love to be able to, uh, you know, be above our neighbors in intellect. Well, it's not to tap into a spiritual power to cause our various ministries to simply flourish flourish for the sake of flourishing, uh, to get numbers up and that kind of thing. Now, right doctrine is essential to knowing and exalting Christ, But as we've read, without a change of the heart and the gift of faith, right doctrine avails nothing. So we could go through our entire 12-week series here. I could teach you everything you would need to know about the Holy Spirit, and it would, in the end, mean nothing. We know Satan's understanding, his intellect of the Trinity, is as sound as any created beings. But this does not cause saving faith. Ministries often flourish outwardly with charismatic or gifted leaders who can fill many seats and offering plates, but it is building a ministry on the sand if the Spirit of God is not converting or changing the heart of man. The Greek word telos, which means the end or purpose, raises the question of why we do certain things. What is the end goal? Why is this study important to you this morning, or after this hour has passed, what benefit will this 12 weeks of study bring about? Proximate purpose and remote purpose are two words I'd like for us to consider. Proximate is that which is near to you, remote, far. Our proximate purpose has quick returns and short-term goals. Perhaps you would like a quick answer to some theological dilemma, such as whether the gifts of the Spirit exist today, 
or desire an explanation about what exactly the baptism of the Spirit is. And what is a second baptism of the Spirit, if that exists at all? So remote purpose is purpose seen from afar. The long-term effects, such as how to maintain a fullness of the Spirit after regeneration. And that's for the Christian battling long spells of drought, feeling very dry spiritually. The purpose for our study is ultimately both proximate and remote. Proximate in that we will receive practical guidance in our everyday lives. And in our second, I heard a couple of people say, I thought this study was only three weeks. Because uh, in my description it said in three parts. Uh, I was dividing that into four-week sections there. So I apologize for that. But the first section is going to be, the first third is going to be a look at the Holy Spirit himself. The second will be his work in the life of the believer, and the third will be his work in the life of the church corporately. So, proximate in that we will receive our practical guidance to grow spiritually for the sake of the Lord's glory, for our own selves, of course, but also our families and especially the body of Christ. It is remote, it's far off, in that it leads toward the ultimate the chief end of man, the end, the chief telos of man, which is to enjoy the presence of God for eternity. That is our chief end. And that's my desire whenever we talk about these things, that everyone come to know Christ so that this group can still be a group in heaven. Isn't that a glorious thought? So an illustration, a football team's offensive line, I know football's past, but at the time, okay, I was working on this. A more uh, proximate purpose of an offensive line, their chief end at the time is that next first down. Eventually, that's going to lead to a touchdown, right? A more remote purpose of the team is winning the game, still farther, winning that Super Bowl. Now, as we all know, the team receives this massive golden ring. Looks like something you'd find at a consignment shop or something for a dollar, but it's actually real, right? Studded with diamonds and a trip to meet once with the President of the United States, if you accept the offer. The differences between the Super Bowl champion and the Christian is that, for one, this coveted Super Bowl ring will perish on the last day in fervent heat but the believer will receive, will receive an incorruptible crown of life. Secondly, instead of meeting with the President of the United States for a few hours, the believer will live with the King of Kings for all eternity. I would rather work toward the latter. Plus, I know of no NFL team that would risk a contract on me. How about you? Probably not. Martin Lloyd-Jones states, a man who is filled with the Spirit is a man who is always remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit points to Him. The Spirit glorifies Him. The Spirit always leads to Him. And so the man filled with the Spirit will ever be looking to Him. As we study the Holy Spirit, we will find that He will cause us not to look at Himself. He is not the end-all and be-all. He will be constantly directing our gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth of Christ is found in Scripture and not in our own experience. 
as we gaze upon the glory of Christ, we will become changed as with Moses when he gazed on the passing glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai. The people knew Moses had seen the Lord for his face shined in otherness they could not withstand. In Exodus 34, we read, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, regarding the, talking about the Lord there. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. As the Holy Spirit directs our gaze towards Christ in this study, we will become as Isaiah when he witnessed the glory of God. We will see our own fatal imperfection and cry out, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the presence of holiness, we are acutely aware of our uncleanness. The holiness of our King will cause us to desire righteousness when we fix our eyes upon his beauty. The Holy Spirit gives us the eyes to see him and turns our faces to behold him. Consider the penitent tax collector in Christ's parable in Luke 18. But the tax collector, standing some distance away from the gathering crowd, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. After learning about the Holy Spirit, I doubt our faces will glow when we leave this place, and none of us will experience what Isaiah saw until we reach heaven. But we can, as some have, experience the response of the tax collector. And it has been my prayer through this time of preparation that many of us will have the eyes to see and the hearts to trust Christ, living holy lives for his glory as the Holy Spirit gives us ability. So, this is theology, theos, the study of God. In R.C. Sproul's book, Everyone is a Theologian, he opens with the statement that theology is a science. Now, this phrase has a tendency, any scientists out here? Is this your job? Anyone in? Good, I won't offend anyone, so that's good. But those that are in the world of science with empirical evidence and testing of data, to hear that theology is a science is uh, other to them. The word science translates to the word knowledge, literally. It has been long held that the knowledge of God, theology, is essential to understand the form and function of the world, at least at a base level, or even at a base level. In fact, theology for centuries was considered the queen of the sciences because by knowing about the creator, we then have the foundation to learn about the rest of creation. Now, the view that we hold about anything in life is held within a paradigm, a model, to explain how or why a thing is the way it is. And Schaefer would call this a Christian worldview or a secular worldview. It's how you view the world. 
We know that uh, what scientists believe about microbiology or physics is not what science held to be true even a decade before. We call that a paradigm shift. It's moved because there's new evidence. This empirical evidence that's uncovered, whether by invention of new technology, you know, we build a bigger microscope or telescope and we can see things more clearly, or there's some newly improved theorem, some mathematician has helped solve some problematic thing in the world of physics. These current paradigm shifts are always subject to future change. And if you talk to anyone strictly in the world of science, they will admit if new evidence changes, of course my mind is going to change, and as it should. Paradigm shifts in the realm of theology, though, are rare, and for good reason. Our evidence does not change, as the primary evidence is the Word of God. Now, whenever you bring yourself away from the Word of God, and you are left only to your own mind, then you're going to have a paradigm shift. And we've seen that especially in the last hundred years, as we will study about church history, there have been significant paradigm shifts from uh, the turn of the 20th century up until now. And uh, if you've read anything about Azusa Street, okay, Azusa Street was this uh, rebirth of a second Pentecost, or so it's said, and we'll learn about that. But that changed a paradigm. It actually caused a different way, a different teaching than what had been held for 1900 years. Now that should cause us to pause and consider, does it align with Scripture? So there are three sources for the theologian. There are three sources. We have biblical theology. Biblical theology is taking the data of the Word of God, and I call it data for the sake of the information from the Word of God, and we use all of it from Genesis to Revelation, not just the book of Job, not just the book of Revelation, as some are prone to do. They focus only on a certain book, but it is the overarching message of Scripture. That is biblical theology. We also have historical theology. Historical theology uh, takes the data of the Bible, and whatever the church has held for like the last uh, 2,000 years, we examine that and we see what has the church stood for based on Scripture. So our creeds, uh, the worship team is going to, I actually heard them practice the Apostles' Creed this morning in music. So we'll be singing a creed, catechisms, confessions that the church has held to over the last 2,000 years. That's historical theology. And we can look back at those things through history and, and come to a conclusion about who God is. We also have systematic theology. That's taking biblical theology coupled with historical theology, all the data of Scripture, all of the things that the church has held to, and we add in these gifted teachers that we have seen through the ages that have interpreted these things, written commentaries, and have, have preached sermons. That is a systematic or a system of going through the essentials of the Word of God. Now, I, on your handout, I don't have the handout up here, of course, but there's a little game that you can play. I call it the Johns of the Centuries, and these are the uh, very... Um, well, well-read, 
dependable, systematic teachers. So in the 16th century, who do we have? John Calvin. In the 17th century, who do we have? Owen. In the 18th century, who do we have? Edwards. Very good. In the 19th century, who do we have? J.C. Ryle. Okay, John Charles Ryle. And then in the 20th century, of course, I had to say John MacArthur. And he just uh, wrapped up his 50th year of ministry. And I added him in there. If someone's preaching and is a fervent defender of the faith for 50 years, I thought his name uh, had earned a spot in that, in that list. Not that these men are apostles. Not that these men speak new revelation, but they are faithful expositors of the word. So, <laughs> That's true. Darren says they have different theologies. And, so it's, and that's why we don't depend on them. We depend on the word of God. Their helps. So, Just like, don't depend on what I say. Always look through what the scripture teaches. So our evidence then is unchanged because the word of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. There are few dramatic shifts in Christian thought. That said, this branch of theology, pneumatology, from the Greek word pneuma, and then it actually, you actually pronounce the P. Okay? Some people think that you never pronounce the P. Well, if you're Greek, you do. So it's pneuma. The proper learning of each branch of theology, including uh, pneuma, and that's another thing on your handout that you can fill out there, has an effect on every other branch of theology. So if you are studying the Holy Spirit and you say that he draws you like he's coaxing you, like, come here, come here, instead of giving you that new heart of flesh and pulling you to the Father, because those are different ideas of the work of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to have a different view of homardiology, which is the study of sin. Did the man fall completely when he sinned? Because the right view of that, a biblical form of that, is that the intellect also fell, along with uh, you know, our spiritual state and our standing with God. That's why people don't recognize the Lord whenever you point to them Christ without the Holy Spirit. So we know that uh, a right view of the Holy Spirit also affects our church life, how we function as a body of believers. That's ecclesiology. All of the, all of the ologies of, of what we can study about the church is affected by this study that we're in right now and every other study. That's why Sunday school is important. So let's look at the Holy Spirit in Scripture. In the book Biblical Doctrine, which is a, a MacArthur-Mayhew collaboration, as well as other people who contributed, it, is a break, it has a breakdown of word use. The two words uh, for the Holy Spirit, or spirit, as we see, are the Hebrew word ruach, and the Greek word, as we said, pneuma. Now, pneuma and ruach are onomatopoeic in that uh, they have a figurative language uh, bend to them, that pneuma. It is that expulsion of air, that wind, that breath, that is what the word means. And so anytime that you're studying scripture and you see the word pneuma 
or ruach. It's not specifically always speaking about the Holy Spirit. It may be talking about, um, I've got it listed here, it may be talking about the spirit of man, where Job says, you have granted me life and loving kindness, and your care has preserved my spirit. So that is your person within. It could mean an attitude. In Proverbs 16, it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. That same word in the Old Testament, so that would be ruach in that one, is talking about an attitude that we have. And we know that whenever you're in a basketball audience and someone hits a three, like all day yesterday there were games going and people are going crazy, and you would say, they've got quite a strong sense of school spirit there. And there's this energy there's this uh, strong attitude that your team is going to win. Uh, also, the immaterial part of man in Psalm 31, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. And we know Christ actually spoke those words on the cross. In the Old Testament, 378 times we see the word ruach. But only 79 of those times, which is roughly 21 or 21% of that usage, is actually referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, next week's study, just so everyone knows, our, our focus is going to be on the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament. So we're going to examine specifically, and I'm going to be using B.B. Warfield's treatment of that. So if you have any uh, access to B.B. Warfield and you read, I think it's it might be common use online, so if you wanted to read up on that. But only 79 of 378 times is the Holy Spirit distinctly referred to. In the New Testament, pneuma is mentioned, uh, let's see, two, 379 times. And I think that's interesting. Only one more time in, in the New Testament. It's much shorter, but it, the word is used more often and out of that 379 times, referring to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit specifically, 245 times. So the Old Testament usage and the New Testament usage, there are three times more likely when you see the word Spirit referred to specifically the Holy Spirit. And the only New Testament books that do not refer to um, the word pneuma, they don't have the word pneuma at all, is Second and Third John. Now, if you have a desire to read about the Holy Spirit in New Testament Scripture, the top three books are going to be Acts, which mentions him 56 times, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. Uh, these will be very important books as we go through our own study. Now, the Holy Spirit as Spirit is invisible. Abraham Kuyper, in his work on the Holy Spirit, states that the Holy Spirit leaves no footprints in the sand. Jesus Christ, however, was in the flesh. He was visible to the eye. His voice could be heard. His touch could be felt. His clothes had a certain scent. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. You cannot see him. As John 3.8 tells us, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. His work is as gentle as a breeze in late spring or 
as strong as a violent hurricane gale that bends the trees low when it comes to shore. An illustration of the gentle breeze and the persistent strength of the Holy Spirit is in the conversion of C.S. Lewis. Now, he mentions in his autobiography his path of redemption. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he was a staunch atheist in his early intellectual years. Uh, Some of his professors had a great influence on him, and he built up these walls uh, to keep out God. He says, uh, and this is after talking with uh, his friends J.R.R. Tolkien and also a man named Hugo Dyson. They were uh, comrades there in school together. Um, and then professors later, night after night of conversation resulted in restlessness. So here he is, an atheist, speaking about the things of God with these men. Lewis writes, You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen College, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. Does that explain you now? That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. And in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Now, he distinguishes that moment of recognizing who God was, that he was there, But he distinguishes that moment from when he recognized Christ as Lord. So maybe you're here and you believe that God exists, but you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this is the gentle breeze after his strong, persistent effect on C.S. Lewis's heart. It says he was on his way to the zoo with his brother. His brother had a motorcycle and he was riding in the sidecar. And he says, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. (laughs) So that shows you how we know the Spirit works mysteriously. We can't see Him work, but we know He does. So the power that works upon the heart of man is strong. But is it this impersonal energy or influence? Or does He have personality? We find attributes of personality, such as if someone has intelligence, they have a will, they have emotion, and they can effect change. And uh, there's an old philosopher that says, I think, therefore I am. He was validating his existence, his personhood. But we, we see the intelligence of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2. For to us, God revealed them Through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So we know the Holy Spirit can think through all things. He is omniscient. We see his will in 1 Corinthians 12. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So he has a volition. And it's a sovereign volition. You say, well, I thought that he was subordinate to the Father and the Son. That is true. He does the will of the Son. He does the will of the Father. Just as Christ did the will of the Father. 
they desire the greatest good, which is himself. They desire the greatest good. So whatever the Spirit wills is what the Son wills, and whatever they will is what the Father wills, and it comes from the will of the Father. We see his emotion in Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then we see his personhood in pronouns. Now we know pronouns are a very important thing even in the culture today. But we see this in his personhood. As a matter of fact, uh, 15 times we see where is it here? Oh, Twelve times the word he is used, uh, named along with the Father and the Son in Matthew 28, 19. We also see in that, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, uh, I have to recant already. His pronoun he is used in John 16, I apologize. John 16, verses 7 and 8, and verses 13 through 15. So that personal pronoun, I'm actually going to read that just so we can hear that. John 16, verses 7 and 8, he says, But I tell you the truth, uh, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I'm going to skip down to 13. It says, uh, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. For he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All the things that the Father has, has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So, you got that? He. Over and over again, we see that personal pronoun. And so, uh, we also know that he's, he can be grieved and lied to, as Ananias and Sapphira did when they lied to the Holy Spirit. Um, so we see that personhood over and over again. So in addition to personhood, we see his deity. And his deity means that he is God. He's not created by God as the fallen Satan, and as all of us are in this room. The Holy Spirit proceeds from God. He is God. He is not a lesser person. He is co-equal with God the Father and God the Son, sharing with them the same divine attributes. The Holy Spirit's deity has not been questioned, as was the deity of Christ, largely through the church the time of church history, like the Arians said that Christ completely emptied himself and he was only man. He was the God-man, but he was man and not God, which is a heresy. So he is not created. He has existed from everlasting to everlasting, known as the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14. So Looking back again at Ananias and Sapphira, that well-known story of the people that were struck dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit, 
in Acts 5, says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And he says, You have not lied to men, but to God. So we see his divinity there. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, and 6, we are shown the same Spirit, and later it says, the same God works all in all. So the Holy Spirit, again, divine. And then uh, Luke 1, 35, we see that the Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary resulting in the conception of Jesus in the womb. So we, we see his power that no other created being could do that. That is his divine attribute. Jesus tells us that the Spirit knows all things. Well, he can only know all things and teach all things because he is omniscient. He is God. We know he is truly God of his works. He does many phenomenal works that can only be accomplished by God himself. We see him in Genesis 1-2, breathing, hovering over the breath or over the waters, that chaotic existence before he ordered it. Only God could do that. And Job again says, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. The breath of the Almighty. Moreover, it is the Spirit who creates within man a new heart. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. This being born again, regeneration. And in John 3, 5, Jesus says that each person must be born of the water, physically exists, and of the Spirit. If a person is not born of the Spirit, that person will not, will not enter the kingdom of God. Finally, the Holy Spirit claims the inspiration of Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And we know that He was the one who carried along the men who wrote Scripture. I've talked to people who said, Bible's got flowery language, it's got some good things to learn, but they don't take it as inerrant and infallible because they said that inerrant and infallible people wrote it. That's not true. These men were fallible, these authors were fallible, they're men. But it was not them writing it. The Bible says that the Word of God moved, carried along these people and that all Scripture is inspired by God. So that's something very important. We can't really study anything about the Holy Spirit if it was just a bunch of guys who wrote the Bible. This is the Word of God. So um, because he's the author of the Word of God, then he's divine. So believers who affirm a high view of Scripture have sometimes been accused of deifying the Scriptures. And they say, well, you worship the Bible. You have deified the Bible instead of looking at the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to me, they say. My word is just as good because the Holy Spirit speaks to me. But they forget that all of our conscience, uh, conscious uh, will towards the things of God is based on Scripture. It's not based on their own minds. It says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. But it's, John says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So we don't worship the Bible, but the Bible is our inerrant source of truth because it comes from the Holy Spirit. Our final consideration this morning is how the Spirit relates to the Father and the Son. I talked about this procession, this going out from the Father and the Son. We know the three divine persons now share the same attributes 
They are all persons. They are unified with one mind. They all desire the greatest good, which is himself, and are of the same essence or being. They call it the hypostatic union. They're all one. That's why we have this word uh, triune, three in one. The two words to explain the relationships of these, these three persons are begotten, as you know, refers to Jesus Christ, and procession. We read that Jesus the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. He's not created. Now, this is a mystery that, that different theologians have tried to unravel through time how this works in this Son being begotten of the Father without being created. And I read uh, a man named Athanasius, an ancient church father, says, relating how we view things and how God actually is, he says, God is in being, not as we are. He doesn't exist as we exist, and yet he is in being as God. He does exist, though, and creates not as man creates. You know, we think of someone being begotten. The mother and father have a son or daughter. We see that in the world. But yet, God does not create as man creates, but yet creates as God. So it is plain that he begets, not also as men beget, but begets as God. So the Son of God then, coming begotten of the Father, is not something that we can wrap our minds around because we've never seen it. But we trust upon faith that when Scripture says that Christ is the only begotten Son of God, that we take that at face value and rest upon that. Now, procession, and that's referred to as generation. Begottenness is generation. Now, procession refers to what makes the Spirit the Spirit. We read in John 14, 26 that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. He's sent by the Father in the name of the Son, and He is called the Spirit of Christ, or proceeding from Christ. And this is His unique relation within the Godhead. This explains His role within the Godhead to do the will of both the Father and the Son, just as Jesus spoke of doing the will of his Father. There is divine subordination, but there is not inequality. Specific roles are perfectly fulfilled to accomplish God's perfect will for his own glory and, miraculously, for our good. These ideas may not be fully comprehended, but that which we do grasp will give us a greater sense of this wondrous work of God. So I'm going to end there. And are there any questions off the top of your head now? We've just got a couple of minutes, but anything that came to mind as we were reading Scripture and hearing? Okay. On that note section, in the last two lines in the back of the handout, if you do, if you were writing down something that you have a question on, feel free to ask in the coming weeks, um, whenever we have this time. Maybe you're not thinking of something right now, or maybe you read something this week, uh, but our goal is to study and to learn. 
and your questions can teach me also. So, let us pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our morning. Lord, your person is very, uh, learning about your person is very, in some ways, incomprehensible, but through your kindness, you give us um, truth about yourself. So help us not to completely turn away from this and say it's too deep because you want us to know. You want us to be unified in mind and spirit. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to guide us as we go through these coming weeks. And uh, Lord, we pray that you are pleased. And we pray also, Lord, that the people here are learning and that they are trusting you more through each lesson. And Lord, we pray for this church and may you uh, be with all of the music that will be sung and also the word that will be heard in the worship hour. And Lord, we thank you that you give us your word and competent um, expositors of your word. And Lord, we pray for uh, the needs of our church family, those that couldn't be with us due to physical problems or uh, spiritual battle, whatever may be the case. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would be gracious and bring us again into your house next Sunday. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.